0: Hello, my name is John Kennedy, welcome to this special best of episode of Tape Notes. With Season 6 coming up, we wanted to welcome you back with a few highlights of the amazing artists and producers we were lucky enough to speak to in Season 5. You'll hear from Caribou, Jack Garrett, Tom Mish and Adam Jaffrey, Ghost Poet, Rena Sawayama and Clarence Clarity, Badly John Boy and Gethin Pearson, Group Love and Dave Sitek, Enter Shikari, and finally EOB, Ed O'Brien and Flood. But we start with one of the UK's finest bands, Foles. For our first highlight, we're going to hear from Janis, the brilliant frontman of Foles, and he starts us off with the previously unheard early demo of Syrups.
1: I'll just play the actual original demo that um, I don't think anyone really outside of the bands ever heard. I mean, it sounds quite similar to the finished product, but here we go. So this is the original loop uh, from the mini-log. And that formed the basis for the final song, Syrups. Um, So we literally just sort of imported um, this and used it as the bedrock foundation for then the live playing that occurred over it.
0: Yeah. This is a phone recording of the rehearsal in the rehearsal studio.
1: This is a recording from the studio in Oxford where, having had the initial demo idea that I'd done on my own, took it in, pumped it through the PA, and then we jammed over it) <laughs> Lots of weird little noises that some uh, probably Jimmy's making over the top. And this recording goes on for half an hour, so obviously I won't play it the whole time. And then we wrote the main hook out of it. I think this is the first time we ever played this part now coming up. So I think this record, more than any other, has a lot of backing vocals. Um, normally, Walter would have done them in the past, but obviously he departed before we made this record, so I was kind of forced to um, do most of the BVs, and one of the ways in which I wanted it to differentiate from the main like lead vocal, which was actually Brett's idea. Um, Brett has a microphone that's essentially a Yamaha NS10 speaker cone Rewired so that if you sing into it, it turns into a microphone that has this really distinctive awesome vocal sound It has just this lovely old dusty quality to it It almost feels like I'm you know that we're self sampling with this record again, I was totally alone um, often working on lyrics the night before at the pub and I'd go in in the morning I would purposely not edit any lyrics at night in the pub, usually because I was kind of not in a state to be editing by the end of it. So I'd wake up fresh with whatever stuff I'd written from the night before, and then I'd go in and I'd try it out on the mic and then see what would sing well or not. And then I'd build up the track that day. Maybe you have to write some more lyrics again the next night at the pub. And that was kind of the cycle of of writing the lyrics on this record and I wrote all the lyrics on the record in about a month and a half and, you know, without exaggeration almost every lyric was written at the pub <laughs> um, which is also why I sort of was quite unhealthy by the end of the album but it was, um, it was nice to feel that I was writing almost in a public setting and I think that it helped push the lyrics into a kind of communal place. Nice oh, little bit of chorus on there. So that's the Cone vocal coming in again from the NS10.
2: And
1: that's the Peacock vocal. That's what we referred to as the Peacock vocal, which actually is just me harmonising myself and I was thinking about Peacocks. Brett had a lot of vocal mics set up all at the same time. and We would just try different ones out. So the main vocal often would just be on the SM7 for the most part but then on other s- songs we would tweak it but when it came to the bvs we would do the ns10 cone vocal um we would do it at different ranges so i'd move around the room and then stack up different mics to kind of get this feeling of there being an actual backing vocal kind of choir going on i said i'm so sorry to have kept you waiting round i wish i could have come up could have shouted out loud. I remember, you know, what was quite nerve wracking about this album in particular was the with the amount of uh, vocals that were going on, often the guys would come back in after I'd done the vocals. In most cases, actually, they'd been away from the studio for almost a month. And when they came back in, I was kind of playing everything. And it was quite a nerve wracking experience for me, probably also for them, you know, like, oh, my God, has he ruined the song, you know, with all of this stuff. And that particular vocal was one where I thought they're going to hate this.
0: Um... But they didn't, so that's, that's nice, isn't it? It is very nice. Yanis coming clean about his own fragility with regard to his bandmates. Fascinating stuff. Next up, we have Dan Snaith, a.k.a. Caribou, who joined us from his basement studio at home in Stoke Newington, where the album suddenly was recorded. He gives us a wonderful insight into his working flow, embracing chance interactions, and the kind of effort that goes into his creative process. I read somewhere that there were 900 draft ideas for the album.
3: Yeah, that is not an exaggeration. I got that number from looking at a folder of Ableton projects on my computer and seeing, oh my God, you know, it's nearly in the quadruple digits at this point. We're going to actually talk about some of the songs today. One of the songs for the first time this has ever happened was started before I finished Our Love, the previous album. And then the last songs were finished. Everything was kind of... uh, final details were put on everything in august 2019 so it's you know definitely five years of time in there maybe not always you know i did some daphne stuff and times that we were on tour and other things family life etc but 2016 to 2019 every day working on music coming up with ideas every every single day and um that's just always been the way that i've done it it's kind of like a I just throw darts at a dartboard until something really clicks. So it's an extremely wasteful process, but I like starting something new every day. That's the kind of the thing that I started doing without before this was a kind of career or a job or me thinking about releasing music. I, I like that starting, you know, making something new that, that wasn't there before. The next thing that happens is kind of, um, well, it reveals something emb- embarrassing about my degree of focus or lack of focus when I'm working. So this part right here ah. has this disembodied voice saying, ah, that mm. comes in. Ah. Ah. And that is, f- <laughs> so I had a, an internet browser open and I had loaded up a, like a trailer for a Netflix movie called Shirkers. It's this kind of documentary about an art film made in Singapore. And it was just sitting there in my browser. And then I went back to working and I guess it was kind of buffering or something. And then I was playing this part. And then randomly the video, the trailer started playing in the background in my browser. And all of a sudden there was this sound in exactly the right key. And I was like, oh my god, I, I've got to have that. And so I sampled that bit from, the, from this video. After the Radiohead tour that we supported Radiohead in 2012, all over the world, when they were touring the world, um, Nigel Godrich came out to a bunch of the shows on that tour, and we got talking, and he was, you know, talking about music, and he said, when you're back in London, just come into my studio, and we'll just hang out and talk about stuff. And he, for any music producer, is a dream, obviously. He's like yeah. the producer's producer. And I went into his studio, uh, it was in then in Covent Garden, and saw this, like, you know, it's like eyes bulging out of my head type moment, like with Sam's studio, of all this stuff. And I'm like, Nigel, just please tell me, what's the one chain that I should have? You know, microphone, preamp, compressor, and then into the computer. And I, I, it's only ever me, I only really need one of them. So he told me to get this kind of uh, API lunchbox with a preamp in it, an 1176 uh, compressor, and I did. And I got the microphone, and I have this one chain that is like Nigel Godrich approved. (laughs) But in subsequent conversations, he's like, it's so funny, everybody always asks me that question. They always ask me, what is the kind of path through this gear that I should use, and your records already sound good. You don't need to know the answer to that question. You don't need to go out and buy the things that are kind of the textbook approved things because you've already figured it out in some way. So I'm just kind of mumbling different syllables. But I think this, the vocal in the chorus is exactly the vocal that I used, the final vocal that's in, in the song.
0: Is it ever tempting not to move beyond the syllables? Oh, I mean, if you listen to my early records, there's
3: plenty of times that I did that. There's that thing of like first take, best take, where the demo mm. is is better than anything you follow up with. And I'm just trying, I'm like, oh, I can't get it to be better with words. So I, there are a lot of tracks that I just kind of mumbled my way through. I stopped doing that. I feel, I kind of felt like I've got to be able to get past that as the songs that I've written have more personal meaning and more content in the lyrics i've i've kind of banned myself from that thing but there's a lot of that in the in the earlier records yeah
0: fascinating to hear how dan challenges himself and pushes himself forward on his own development amazing stuff dan snaith aka Caribou. And now we're going to hear from Jack Garrett. From his shed to LA and back to London, his second album, Love, Death and Dancing, took him on a physical and emotional journey. Here, Jack starts us off by extracting some of the many layers of his song, Time.
4: From here, from where the 808 has then started to change its rhythm, it starts to also let go of its responsibility. It's no longer the thing that's driving everything through because at this point, as I was making it, I was feeling good. You know, I wasn't feeling warm, I was feeling good. So I started bringing in some live drums and I started bringing in a 909 I've got in here. The, yeah, the Minimoog bass comes in and starts to really, like, amp up the energy. So this is a little profit bass that's doing the drone underneath it, added with a Mini Moog VST, that's doing the syncopated stuff, the dancey stuff. And again, putting the 808 underneath that sounds like... With the noisy sequence synth that we had earlier. The original sequence synth from beginning. Putting in the guitar riff. What I've added in here as well is a synth brass part that acts as a drone for the first like half of this build and then starts to open itself up. New notes, new chords, new rhythms. And all of that with... With a melody that just repeats itself. So bearing in mind, we've been building already for 34 bars or something. I could have dropped it there, but I added two more on. (laughs) With the trombones. And then this is the build coming up here. Into the end bit. Now, again, you can hear how absolute trash those trombones sound because I did them on an SM7 (laughs) in my shed. But we ended up using them. But lyrics are something I find really hard to do. They take me a long time. Um, I procrastinate when I'm writing them. I just can't sit down and do it. So, So the thing that always spurs me on is feeling a moment and riding it for as long as I can. And when that moment dies down and it gets to the shore, I don't try and swim back out and find it again. I sit on the shore and I just let the moment go until i'm out there again and i'm ready to catch a new one if that makes sense i don't force myself to finish an idea just because i think i like it i very much keep myself to a strict routine of enjoying it and the minute i stop enjoying it i stop altogether and i'll wait you know it could be the next day i'll you know ride that same wave of inspiration again it could be another month it could be another year the way that we made this album was i went to california and we built these songs but then i took all of the audio home with me and i sat in this room that i'm in right now and i did all of the post-production for about two weeks and i reamped the guitar a couple of times to make it sound like this i'll solo it for you so funnily enough This is the first guitar solo I did for this song on the first demo I did. Didn't re-record it. This is, again, this is DI. We re-amped it and made it sound like this. Then I'm watching it here. I've got three versions of it going at the same time. I've got the main solo, which sounds like this. (laughs) And then there's another one. Which is doing that over in the sides just to give it a lot of clarity. That's just the clean. And then this underneath it. And the three of them together. That's what it makes. Yeah,
2: only the so bright.
4: Just a lovely little question from the bass. Like, are we finished? I guess we are. And again, it could end here. It could all fade out and disappear, but I knew there was more story to tell. And the story, like I said, it was my father-in-law with his speech. Mm. And so the things we've got playing here, I've got a loop of the organs, just playing between two notes. And this was a take I had to cut together. So I've just got a loop that I faded in and out of each other for one of them. And then the other one, I've just taken notes from before and stitched them into places I needed them. And then the whole thing um, is being backed up by this riff that's fading in. Which is the trombones and the 808 bass. So that's fading in and getting more intense the whole time. I hope that today is the speech and then the other more ethereal the drone choirs in there as well that's starting to creep in really faintly you can hear that in the background (laughs) and again this was similar to time this was just a game how long can I hold this for how long can I build this for how many times should it go around when should I stop it it could stop this time, but it doesn't. You can hear it starting to break up in the audio. The audio starts dropping out, starts getting more intense. The dropouts get quicker. In the background as well is this motif from earlier. I really wanted to put a bow on the album, but I wanted the bow to feel more like a question than an ending. And then just one last one. A clear and decisive end with no audio dropping out, no post effects, no unnecessary elaborate production, just three chords to end Love, Death and Dancing.
0: You may have heard us talk about Tape It before. And if you haven't, then let me fill you in as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Take Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organizing and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts, and excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. Incredible. The multi-talented Jack Garrett on how he developed the beautiful, only the bravest. I wonder how many artists can say they've included their father-in-law on their album. And from one solo artist to another who decided to step out of the comfort of his own bedroom and create an album with a collaborator. Tom Mish joined forces with the amazing drummer Youssef Days for their joint album What Kind of Music, engineered and mixed by Adam Jaffrey. We start with Tom and Yusuf in the studio at the very creation of their song Last 100.
5: So this started actually, the, the bones of the idea was uh, me and Yusuf had, it was like the end of the day, we'd had a long session and before we left the studio, I think I was just messing around on the piano and he was on the drums and then I started playing these chords that sound a bit like the Rugrats intro <laughs> and and then I clicked record on uh, on my phone just to get the idea down and I've got the initial voice note here actually. Oh, excellent. So I could play it so you can hear the the initial idea. Yeah, that would be great. I can't actually play piano but I'm just about doing
0: it. I'm convinced, it sounds good to me. <laughs> you can hear the idea. So would you
5: mind just real real quick just playing that beat? I just I was going to record on my phone. Yeah, you can kind of hear the, the basis of the song, it changed when we when we looked at it. Yeah. yeah he first had the op1 and he was like don't tell anyone about it it's a secret (laughs) man it's a secret (laughs) i don't want people to get to get onto this and then and then i uh i remember they stopped making they stopped making them didn't they they? and then you you panicked and then bought one off ebay no i brought one off a fan off a fan that was it i i put on my instagram i said has anyone got an op1 to sell me and then a a guy drove from cornwall to the studio to give me the op1 which was amazing so free
0: delivery obviously I, i paid for it but he gave me a good price Wow, brilliant. And it's brilliant connecting with your fan base in that way. No, Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> and they're kind of aiding and abetting your musical exploration and education, which is fantastic.
5: Yeah, he's a big part of this record, actually. I've never shouted him out. So, thank you. Yeah, should give him a shout-out, then. Yeah. I can't remember his name. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
2: Sometimes... It gets
5: you can hear a bit of bleed in there because I often just hold. I, I often just hold a mic and and uh, don't even put headphones on. I just play it out the the speaker quite low volume. Right. You know. So that's how sort of DIY the records being in that sense. You really. know.
0: Yeah. Is that because you prefer not having headphones when you're singing?
5: Yeah, I just think I get a better vibe. Mm. It's almost like I'm playing live. I'm hearing it really low out the speakers. I turn up my vocal. You do get a bit of bleed, but. A lot of the record was this mic I'm talking right now, which is the RE, RE20 by Electra
1: Voice. Electro
0: Voice, yeah. Right. Otherwise known as the
5: uh, Donkey Dick.
2: <laughs> 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 what, why is it known as know that? that, Adam? I don't know, if okay. someone told me.
5: <laughs> I was playing this, just these two guitar chords going through this, um, this guitar pedal I have called the Lo-Fi Junkie. It basically compresses it, lo-fi's it and has this kind of wavy feel sort of like pitch shifting it so i was just literally playing two chords and then what we did is we um put a stereo delay on this which i'll add now both versions are kind of wavering at different points And this is pretty much the basis of the whole song. And then Tom was came in with this bass line. Yeah, I remember someone once said to me,
1: it was James Ford, actually. He said, he said, you got to ride the wave. And um, that kind of resonates with me a bit because I think in this game, sometimes you get a wave and then a bit of a calm and then another wave comes along and just having that perspective that, you know, when the wave comes, you get on it and you ride it and then you wait for the next one. It doesn't, you know, it's a cyclical business this and just got to appreciate, appreciate the waves <laughs> without sounding cheesy, you know what I mean? It's about seeing the long game in that.
0: You've always got to ride the wave. Adam Jaffrey, who engineered and mixed What Kind of Music by Tom Mish and Yousef Days. And now for our next highlight, we hear about another kind of studio collaboration. For his new album, I Grow Tired But Dare Not Fall Asleep, Ghost Poet chose to see what would happen if he put some hand-picked musicians in the studio, added himself to the mix, and gave it a stir.
6: I decided I wanted to go down the route of talk-talk to a certain extent. The engineer who engineered Talk Talk Records and maybe Mark Hollis' solo record as well. He talks about the process for making Laughingstock in particular. And the way they did it was they got musicians in, um, they got them to just to play a whole load of takes, literally gave them like skeleton ideas and then basically orchestrated different variants and different directions of that same idea and just recorded stuff for hours and hours. So I wanted to go down that route, really. So handing over the initial idea to each one of the players. And then I was basically orchestrating where the idea should go in terms of development. And I would have the talk mic on at all times. And it would just be a case of me saying, OK, that's great. Yeah, let's go down that route. And I did that with all of the musicians, um, collecting a whole load of sound and then sifting through it and working out the arrangements. So the bass, all the bass on, the, on this track was uh, Tom Herbert of the Invisible, and once again it was just a case of me giving an original idea, and then him taking it into different places with me pushing and pulling him really. Um, again, with what I did a lot was kind of set up, or the you know the players came down and set up bass, guitar, they came down with pedals and. I would get them to play and then I would literally just go down and tweak the pedals as they were playing to get these different elements and different flavours.
0: You've got all these different parts. How do you go about assembling them? I mean, do you just have it all on a board in front of you and you know what's on which (laughs) fader and just start fiddling around? Do you do it that way?
6: So I created about four books of notes and a spreadsheet with the different elements that I wanted for each track. So on this particular track, I knew that it was going to be, yeah, it was drums, keys, bass, guitar, and then um, like electronic programming. So I kind of took notes of the type of styles or patterns being played. I know that I have 10, 15 moods regarding the drums. The next phase was the arranging phase and I had enough notes to then say, okay, let's try this. It was literally a case of throwing paint at the wall. (laughs) So this was the main melody again, taken from the original idea. Um, It would have been processed a fair bit. We used like an evo-tired harmoniser a lot. The process guitar sounds on this particular record, potentially that was using this one. Then you've got this odd kind of sound that comes in that was, I can't tell you where it comes from, but it was some kind of process simp sound that would have been put through pedals, put through effects, put through an amp, and that's the end result. yeah so we had some strings come in as well um, they were played by a gentleman called Raven another Margate Connection who's a composer and string arranger um, Raven Bush Raven Bush yes Raven Bush yes. indeed yeah. and amazing guy This he basically came in and played all the strings himself so it was literally a case of one guy playing in different positions you will start facing the mic then he would turn his back to the mic and we would record that and that would give us another kind of element he would play it sitting down he'd play it quietly loudly he had different styles of violins to give us more of a depth and the idea of a quartet and yeah an amazing amazing guy
0: ghost poet on the wonders of raven bush Next up, Rena Sawayama and producer Clarence Clarity showing us how sometimes a song has to dress for a different musical era before it finds its own place. But we start with a simple reminder of how an incredible work ethic and grounded approach to creativity are all a vital part of making it in music.
7: Like, so I'd come off stage, um, then run to the airport in Newark, and then get on a flight to do a commercial job in the UK then meet everyone back in Boston two days later so like literally do the shoot come back to Boston do a gig the next day then after the LA show which was three days later I'd then hop on a plane right after the LA show to then go to New York to do another shoot and then get back to LA so I was like in hindsight I don't know how I did it physically but I was like the goal of the album is so much bigger for me and so yeah it made sense to work and I don't know I I sort of read this really useful little tip um that said basically like don't burden your creativity with like immediately with the responsibility of earning money so yeah long story short it's just a big old hustle
0: so this is the demo that you then discuss with clarity to decide to change
7: world exclusive
0: So as you say, I mean, this is pretty produced up, isn't it? You know, it's um, sounding yeah. very realised. and this is I don't know you-
7: why they still want to work with me because like, I was like, hey, love what you did, but we're going to change it. <laughs> Which I think it really speaks to producers because you've put so much time and effort into it and then it might get changed.
8: Fast forward in it five, 10 years into like early nineties territory, just swinging rather than sort of straight drums. <laughs> And got a little vinyl scratch in there, and the little uh, sort of whistling synth on the top is quite you know, characteristic of that era. Like this stuff, it's like the G funk thing that then got like eaten up by all of the '90s pop, like Spice Girls and stuff like that. <laughs> Went in on that MIDI programming there.
7: I've watched a songwriting documentary like years ago, either the Bee Gees or ABBA. (laughs) I don't remember, but they said like every song needs 10 hooks and I really believe in it. Like it's not just the vocal hooks, it needs instrumental hooks. And I think that's so important for it to be like maximum earworm. I feel like in every song there has to be some sort of hook in the instrumental as well as the vocals that's separate, but distinct in its own way but also fits in and complements it and it should feel like a familiar friend when it comes back in like later on in the track so yeah it like sort of appears in the intro and then keeps popping back in in the second verse to like sort of help it but yeah I think it's super important to have that.
0: And there's some pretty amazing guitar soloing going on on Dynasty as well. Hell yeah. So where, (laughs) where did that come from and whose idea was that?
8: Actually, this is quite an interesting little story because I was going back through earlier versions and we didn't actually have that part at all, did we? And yeah, we just came out of the bridge just into like a breakdown originally.
2: I'm losing myself
8: so the idea was to have, like, a super intimate bit before the final chorus kicked in. So that wasn't enough drama for Rena, so no. we went back and, and had a look at a guitar solo, which is kind of a combination of both of us. Like, I started off and sort of maybe shredded out the first half of it, and then... I think it was kind of an accident actually wasn't it originally because you were singing to me how you thought the solo should go the sort of the second half of it Yeah. so I had that recorded while I was trying to work it out and then we're like this sounds sick actually
7: I don't usually sing guitar solos but this one I was like yeah I think I know what I want it to sound like and then that Christina Aguilera there's a blend of Beyonce and Christina Aguilera going on I feel like that was a vocal challenge that was not easy
0: vocals of Rina Sawayama. Now, one of the more welcome aspects of 2020 has been the return of Damon Gough, otherwise known as Badly Drawn Boy. He came back with his first new album in eight years, the brilliant Banana Skin Shoes, produced by Gethin Pearson. We hear how for them it's all about trusting the process, and we start with an early demo of Colours being played on the piano round at Damon's house.
9: The sound of your happy rolling through my mind. I see colors from the second me
10: music to
0: my eye. So this is Damon playing at his piano with you beside him, Gethin, recording That's it right. on your phone, is that right? So this bit by here.
10: You can hear the solo piano bit. Yeah, so that's Damon just recording, just, just just on a phone. I think we should have just, we shouldn't have bothered working on it. That would sound
9: as brilliant as it is. <laughs> Put that out. <laughs>
0: it's true. Uh, you know, I've got
10: I've got to try and bring
9: something. No, it's pretty. It is actually embarrassing to hear that. But it, it's kind of like when the song's done, you realise how important those little early versions are. There's a charm to it, mm. but we took it on to other places.
10: You know, a lot of people will say about production, kind of, oh, how'd you get this sound or how'd you get this sound? It's kind of it's not just about kick drum sounds and, you know, and t- it's about the energy you set up for an artist, I think, and kind of uh, how you how you frame everything. Obviously choosing that studio, it was, it was great to go there because I've worked there a lot before. It was close to where Damon lived, but also just, I would have liked to have gone there for this record anyway, just because of the energy that's there and the kind of, just how relaxed it is. So that's an important part from the production side of view as well, I think.
9: I was basically learning how to use Pro Tools whilst I recorded this. I was so I'd, I had a, a kick drum and a snare on a on a keyboard. So I was playing those in live without any quantize didn't even bother to quantize it. I was just excited to learn Pro Tools, so I opened up another track, played a a keyboard and a bass. Have you got that, Gethin?
10: I've got it, yeah. It's terrible. And what I love about it before we play. You actually love of, something about it. Well, the thing is again, from my point of view, it's kind of although an artist will present some when they present a demo or sometimes it's even like a phone recording i'm never looking for what's wrong with it i'm looking for what are we going to where's the diamond in this we can take you know what's what's great mm. about this why why have they done this you know type of thing i ask myself every this? time <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs>
9: To be fair, this demo version, that's where I came up with that melody. That's that's where I wrote that melody line, was with that trombone sound, so at least it served some purpose. I had this video of Ruben saying, it's a Mona, it's a Mona, and I wanted some spoken word in the middle eight, and Ruben, Ruben opened the song with Banana. The reason I used it is because Ruben was at a nursery It was run by Spanish people. So they spoke in Spanish to the kids. So Ruben was, he had this kind of picture card and was showing it me and he was saying it's a Mona. And I was like, what, does he mean monster? And he went, no, it's a Mona. Turned out that that's Spanish for monkey or what he thought was Spanish for monkey. I think it's mono actually, but he pronounced it Mona. So Ruben's misinterpretation of the Spanish for monkey and monkeys being synonymous with bananas. I just thought that was good enough reason to put it in the song.
0: It's a Mona, no, it's a Mona. it's kind of reassuring to know that I was going to say it is difficult and that it is a struggle and there's something reassuring about that these things just don't arrive in your lap there is a
9: you have to tussle with them before they become well something you're proud of I suppose that you can release to the world
10: and trust the process as well type of thing Is kind of you know sometimes you have to know that there is a process yeah yeah Yeah, and that like I said, it's like okay. Just because it's not right yet, doesn't mean you're wrong. You're kind of exploring things. It's, you're working respect, out the best.
9: Respect the process as well. Mm. Really, the process is part of it. It's integral to it. There's, a few songs come easy, and most of them don't. You know, the, you just have to trust it. Yeah, like you say, Gareth.
0: Damon Goff and Gethin Pearson. I love the way they work together. And from capturing energy in the studio to the energy between an artist and producer. Joining us from across the pond in California, Group Love and producer Dave Sitek talk us through their relationship and how changing your outlook can be a key part of the creative process, but it may result in an
11: addiction to synths. When we met with Dave and started making this album, it was the first time the band had that like magical, unknown feeling again as we first had it when we you know all met each other randomly in Greece. So that was really nice to have that like meeting of the minds at the most perfect moment. Yeah. I was the right weirdo for the job. <laughs> totally. I think they needed someone weird. Sometimes the line between successful and great is really obvious, and sometimes it's not. With these guys, I was just like, oh, it's greatness. So when I was saying originally, like sometimes I'm not the right guy for the job, but sometimes I'm like the exact right guy. And and, and that can be like older brother, teenage clown. That could be, you know, whatever. There's a lot of different roles you have to fill, but when you're in the pursuit of greatness, you're willing to fulfill any of those different, you know, modes, whatever it takes, you know? Whereas if it's like, it's just like a successful thing, then you just lean on habits or whatever. Boring. Yeah
0: so you you came up with that and that just stuck
11: yeah it was just like let's just build stuff really quickly confidently and see if it lasts and if we want to go back and redo something or change something we can Mm -hmm. but like let's just try it and then like kind of build off it but Dan especially because like at first Dan was like really cerebral so he's like really thinking things through and everything and he was the one that I was like just don't think about it man just do drugs man just don't think about it (laughs) And when he wasn't (laughs) thinking about it, he would just crush it. So I was like, my suggestion is that you should never think. He watched me fucking around with the synthesizers and I just saw it in his face. I was like, that's like teenage shit right there. He's an addict now. He's like, I wasn't even thinking about it like this. And I was just like, okay, well now only think about it like this. And then, you know, a lot of the songs were him just, I didn't even have to tell him anything. He was like, what if I just don't do what I thought I was going to do and do this instead? And I'm like, perfect. (laughs) <laughs> to me, voice notes is everything. You've seen Daniel it's and I walk around yeah, yeah, yeah. with our phones, and he and I are just like in that world all the time. We, We're do, just we like, do the same thing. Yeah. And it's like if we uh, lost our phones, we'd lose it, like literally our entire musical profile. There's probably like 70 records on your phone. 100%. You know? To me, it's like equipment comes in later. It's like, yeah, you can do the song anyway. You know, like it doesn't really matter. But back to the original point when we started this interview is that that's what I mean by believable. Like they could have played me songs that they sang on their phone. And I would believe it just as much as a demo that was really more established, which I think that probably in most cases is true. Like if you can sing me the song right now with like a ukulele, I'm going to be more impressed than if, if you're playing me something that has a whole bunch of other things, it, it could be a style, not a song. And the voice notes strips that ability. You can't multitrack it. The song has to come out. It has to be like right there. And I think if you can make a song worthy on your voice notes to play for someone else, you're onto something. But we don't know how to get there. That's a playground recording that I had from New York when I lived in New York. I had it on a mini disc and I've just carried it around on hard drive to hard drive to hard drive to hard drive. And then I was like, hmm, this'll work.
0: And by playground recording, what do you mean? Who was playing in the playground?
11: kids it was just like a ambient recording you know i used to walk around new york and with a mini disc recorder i don't know if you guys remember those things yeah, yeah.
9: definitely but mm-hmm. they had
11: these little stereo mics and i would just walk around the lower east side or wherever and just record ice cream trucks and people and subways and all that stuff and you know me and Tony used that to great effect for a long time we would like put it in loop pedals and slow it down and all that stuff but I had, so cool yeah yeah but i had this one recording and i was like i'm just gonna throw that in there
4: Makes it so emotional.
11: Yeah.
0: Always fascinating to get a little window into the world of the legendary Dave Sittick. And great to speak to Hannah and Christian of Group Love as well. And now let's go to the world of Enter Shikari. We caught up with Rao Reynolds to talk about Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible, the first album where he's taken on the responsibility of being sole producer, allowing him to be more eclectic than ever. So that's how the song
12: starts. It's a lot more bare. But just the way the bass is constantly descending. It just feels like, oh god! It's just I wanted to get this atmosphere of just a, you know, downward spiral of society, basically. Just and it, to represent that, it couldn't be centered just around fear. It had to have a sort of disconnect. It has to had a feeling of disbelief and a sort of flippancy as well, because often as humans we react with humor, just as a defense mechanism. So I think I tried to get all of that into this. Whether you know everyone hears all of those things is a, another thing entirely, but. So a lot of the time, we're we're recording guitar with Rory in the control room and the amps in the live room. So we've got the heads where we can, you know, adjust every tiny setting with us in the control room whilst not being blasted all day by the actual cab. Because, you yeah. know, to to make a cab really burn and get the sound you want out of it, you've got to push it. So we have that in a in a different room, and then we just have it coming through our, our monitors to monitor it. And um, we thought the end of Waltzing One is such a cacophony such a ridiculous you know intense bit of music we thought that he needed to play it right in front of his amp so we'd be getting all the feedback all the kind of horrible nasty tones that you know we'd normally try and avoid when recording something of a good quality so we, yeah, we, yeah we sent him out there and uh, destroyed his ears for an afternoon whilst he was recording his part <laughs> yeah so it starts off with him just basically chugging the chords And as it goes through, you see him, you can hear him move closer and closer to the amp. So you get these like wails. It's like the amp is sort of, you know, mournfully crying. Mm -hmm. They were done by the the Prague Symphonic.
0: who performed the Elegy for Extinction. Yeah, that is also part of the album. Yeah, which is the kind of orchestral piece within the middle of the record.
12: Yeah, they were, you know, as you would expect, really just incredible musicians. You you put the thing in front mm. of them and they were playing it, you know, almost perfectly straight away. Um, I remember the um, the way the Elegy starts when they were going through the the very first run through. So you know, literally they they've had the piece put in front of them. They haven't even sort of flicked through it. We're just, they're just sight reading it. And, um, I remember the second violins looking at me, you know, giving me a sort of side eye uh, evils basically, because their part is a very relentless, repeated phrase that it's, it's not an ostinato, it's a riff. You know, you know, I wrote it. I, you can tell I'm a guitarist. It, it just did a little did a little That's what it is. And now you have to do that for two minutes. It's basically a workout. I, I just got this image burned into my mind it's me just like covering my face, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so, <laughs> like realizing that, you know, up until that point. The second violins were just a channel on Logic. <laughs> you know, they weren't. Well, they weren't human. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, ha- having these people having to play that, yeah, I did feel sorry for. Them.
0: <laughs> As a musician, do you have any advice for other people, or did you receive any advice from somebody who who helped shape your musicality or your attitude to music? Um,
12: I think just it's that whole thing of again the the musical agility. I think like making sure you keep broadening your horizons is so important because you you will very quickly put yourself in a box like often it's not other people that put you into like an area and and keep you there it's actually yourself so being able to keep pushing yourself i mean a lot of people call it like your diet you know your musical diet your cultural diet make sure that that is healthy make sure it's a varied diet i mean that's the most important thing You, you know You are what you eat. You are what you listen to. So like if you're listening to just like a very thin section of the musical spectrum and, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, when we were starting our band, there was still more of a kind of this kind of stringent way that you would define your whole being, your whole character by one very specific part of the musical spectrum. And now, I don't think it's like that as much at all anymore. And I think that's great because, you know, it's, I usually use like the dessert analogy. It's, you know, sometimes you might have a, a cupcake for dessert, but then you're missing out on a, a lemon meringue, on a chocolate gateau, on, on an <laughs> eaten mess. I don't know, do you know what I mean? Like it's, um, there's so much out there to be like utterly inspired and influenced by. And that has been the most important thing for me.
0: The wise, wise words of Rao Reynolds of Enter Shikari. And now, for our last selection of the highlights of Season 5, we turn to someone who is part of one of the great British bands of the last few decades. Ed O'Brien is best known for playing guitar in Radiohead, but this year he finally released his debut solo album after years of on-and-off work with his friend the legendary producer Flood. Under the name EOB, the album Earth might have started with demos recorded on the road, but ended up with a house band to die for jamming on Ed's tunes at Plas Dinham Studios in Wales. So, who's Nathan played with? Who hasn't he
13: played with? Right. I mean, he's played with Quincy Jones, he's Clapton. Uh, I saw Nathan and Omar playing together because they were the rhythm section on Daft Punk, Get Lucky. So when Daft Punk played the Grammys with Pharrell, Nile Rodgers, Stevie Wonder and the Robots, but who's the rhythm section? Oh my God, that's Omar Hakim. I know him from records and Nathan East. And Nathan starts in the 70s. He told me that Barry White took him out on tour when he's like 17. I mean, he's played with Clapton. Everybody. He's he yeah. played with everybody. He's an incredible musician,
0: and Omar has as well. I mean, yeah, he's he's played with Miles Davis.
13: Yeah, he's Let's Dance Bowie. Right, Weather Report when he was a teenager. As and then do. he yeah, <laughs> and then he goes on and he plays with. I think Noel Rogers asked him originally to be in Chic because they grew up together. He's like, I, I want to do the jazz thing. Yeah,
14: there are a couple of times where I sort of looked around the room. And there were more people who were producers. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes Ed was just on his own. Yeah. Everybody else was a producer. Yeah.
13: Nathan produced... He did Curiosity Killed the Cat's second record. (laughs) You know, he's like...
14: David Jesse Ware.
0: Yeah, that's right. David Jesse Ware. David is a well-known producer. Yeah, Yeah, well, we've actually talked to him a couple of times for Tape Notes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm in heaven at this point because I... (laughs)
13: I'm like, whoa, just hold it together. Play the guitar, get your parts, you know, stay in there. Don't get too excited.
14: I'm happy because I can get my train home. (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah.
14: (laughs) And also, I know what's to come. Yeah. David's
13: part, and we're, I want it to be like the, the house party, like the great band at a house party. We were all figuring this out, and I thought, co- okay, I've got this guitar part, it's gonna come in now. Here it goes. And its it was just that thing where you almost, we did a version of it, and this was take four, and each, we're just, just tweaking each version, and we didn't need to talk that much about it, we just knew. And Nathan's bass here, oh my God. I mean, he, he totally, put it into a different place, the whole song at the end. And you know, a great player will do that. I didn't have to tell him to play those notes, he knew. And the playing is just exquisite. They do that thing, Nathan and Omar, where they can play a lot of notes, but the groove is so good and it's kind of you know it's not like they're not showing off
14: they just feel it
13: yeah <laughs> so we've got the whole arrangement now we've got our template mm. and we always had that end and and it was to keep that spirit and then we go on the journey <laughs>
2: yeah
13: <laughs> so that sound. david akumu from the original from, from Plastinum. Plastinum. wow and that's a classical guitar. Like, I don't know how well, he, he got that sound. <laughs> yeah. He's got my playing my Spanish guitar. That's right.
14: There's a huge leap of faith almost that Ed had to take from the start of the record to the end, which is if you're on a stage, the distance between being a backing vocalist and the lead vocalist. That 15 foot, but metaphorically, metaphysically, everything else, it's huge. That's why the record took so long. Yeah. Because it has to come from Ed, with inside Ed, that is nothing to do with his head. It's got to come from his heart. Yeah. And the moment something comes from somebody's heart, everybody listens. And they feel. They don't think, they feel and you get an instant reaction, an equal and opposite reaction. People are like, uh, yeah, I'll start doing something, and who knows why you're doing it? Or I hate that. you know, it's really opposites, but it will be creative, it won't be destructive.
13: This is multi-tracked violas, the old fellas as <laughs> I
2: would call, <laughs> <I> call them. <laughs> Do you just get the old fellas out?
13: (laughs) I just love the sound of mariachi. It does something to me. It instantly invokes the feeling of, I don't know, love, of warmth. Um, It's something about the Mexican culture that I really love, Hispanic culture. So the vocal melody, is there, the lyrics are there. And interestingly, this was the first song that I demoed. And when I heard my vocal on it, I was like, oh, okay, I can sing this, I can do this album. And this is the first vocal that I wasn't kind of wincing on from the demos.
0: Ed O'Brien bringing this Best of Tape Notes season five to a close. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, I would urge you to listen to the full episodes. There's plenty more gold there. And now, one last treat from Season 5. Jack Garrett performing Mara live as first aired on Episode 43.
2: You have come here in the shine. in the breath between the rain The storm distorts the garden's beauty
0: Thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode if you have a moment do tell your friends and leave us a review it all really helps thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show i'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes it relies on your support if you'd like to donate please head to our website to ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up head to our socials and on instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of tape notes until next time goodbye
2: I can see you. Mara. I see you standing there. Go with me in the dark. Your Christians will get.